Flat Out RC time. It's Andrew Sill here coming to you from the land down under, Melbourne, Australia. We're going to talk all things radio control planes, helis and drones. Well, another week. Everything's going well. Been busy. It's been a busy, busy time for me uh, in my work life. A lot of, a lot of stuff happening. Uh, but found time this week to have a chat with a great guy, Mike Farnan. You might know the name if you're from Australia. You probably know the Farnan name as the family that ran the highly successful model engines distribution business. Uh, and Mike is uh, still around, still flying. You know, uh, got out of the business a while ago, but. Great story. He's got some really good stories to tell. If you're into helis, stand by. But even if you're not into helis, just great, great error modeling story. So Mike Farnham coming up. So before that, let's take a look at what's been happening. Well, what has been happening? Well, there's not much happening on the uh, industry scene as far as new products, but uh, no doubt will be drip fed some new models by you know some some brands out there and some new gear i'm really toying up with the idea of getting a new transmitter i don't know i really want voice telemetry sounds crazy but i really like the idea of voice telemetry my old spectrum dx18 doesn't have voice telemetry but uh besides that it's great radio I've never had any problems with the uh, spectrum gear uh but look most gear nowadays pretty good you don't hear the planes falling out of the sky very often and, and if you do it's never one brand it's always multiple brands and but uh anyway the uh thinking about about something like that my dog's back can you hear that the dog's trying to scratch the door down to get in if you've been following this podcast you know that the dog tries to interrupt me now and again it's because she loves me uh now, as, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have Mike Farnan coming on uh, shortly, but I just wanted to have a bit of a chat about the industry and how important our hobby industry is to us. That uh, I'm always very appreciative of those people that go out of their way to import models for us, um, manufacture models for us and other gear, because they give us the opportunity to to enjoy our hobby. Uh, even if you just scratch a building, you still got to buy a server, a receiver, have a transmitter, covering, bolster, that kind of thing. Um, there's an industry behind it that is supporting our hobby. And you know, a lot of people think that there's a lot of money to be made in the hobby, but there isn't. Uh, you know, I've, I've met a lot of uh, manufacturers in China through my travels there, and they always say you know, it's, you know, they don't do it for money. You know, they do it because they absolutely love the hobby. Uh, because margins are pretty, pretty tight and, and they're making that financial sacrifice to make things more affordable for us. As uh, one guy said to me, he said, you know, we were working for, you know, nine years or something and couldn't even afford a, a brand new car. All we could afford is a secondhand Mercedes, but this other guy, he could afford a brand new Mercedes. So they, uh, there's not a lot of money in it. Actually, that guy actually left the business, left the family business because he said it's just not no money in it. So I think that all of us should appreciate the the local shop, the online store, the manufacturer, all those people that go out of their way to bring model aircraft in. Now I did it for a period of time, uh, and actually the reason why I said I was a three D hobby shop distributor when 3d hobby shop was a brand before they merged with extreme flight so if you don't know who 3d hobby shop were they were a uh, range of um a brand that made aerobatic aircraft especially 3d 
aerobatic aircraft, really good quality. Uh, I've still got plenty of their planes in my own hangar and uh, really, really good stuff. But uh, yeah, look, I basically sold airplanes to buy more airplanes in to give people the opportunity to, to fly them. Uh, you know, we had extreme flight there, actually. The story behind me bringing 3D Hobby Shop is quite interesting. I, I, I did order a Pilot RC kit, but it wasn't arriving anytime soon. I wanted a 30cc that could fit in the back of my Volkswagen MRL cute. The Extreme Flight 78-inch Extra at the time wouldn't fit in the back of my car. So that was out. Uh, a Pilot RC kit would, but there were none around. And then I started looking around, came across 3D Hobby Shop, was looking for something else to do, and then ended up bringing them in. And then once uh, Extreme Flight emerged with 3D Hobby Shop, I basically said to DA Australia, you take it. They were extreme flight dealer, great bunch of guys. Uh, and I just went on my merry way. But uh, yeah, the amount of money, the way that I put it is if I had to run that as a standalone business, I would have been broke within a month. Uh, fortunately, I've got a marketing business and that paid the bills and paid the rent and paid me and the, kept the bank manager happy in my mortgage and all that kind of stuff. But uh, so I did it sort of on the side took it seriously but did it on the side and uh but yeah not much money to show for it at the end but uh why do we do these things because we just enjoy it sometimes it's not always about money and that's what you find in the industry so please respect the industry support the industry as best you can i'm a big believer that you know some people say oh just make sure you support your local hobby shop well, my philosophy is support the businesses that support you really well uh if your local hobby shop is a dud don't support them. They're probably not worth being there because they're not doing the right thing. But, you know, there's plenty of good uh, operators around Australia. You look at the likes of Desert Aircraft Australia and, and the team up there in a market, great job. Model Flight do an excellent job. Uh, Metro Hobbies down here in Melbourne, you know, got got plenty of stuff for, for those radio control freaks out there. Uh, Perth RC, um in New South Wales, oh, there's a bunch of different different hobby shops around. So we're pretty fortunate here in Australia to still have some good representation from the industry. So it's my thoughts on the industry. Guest time. And as mentioned earlier, this week's guest is Mike Farnan. Uh, the Farnan name is synonymous with the industry in Australia. At one point in time, they were the biggest uh, hobby distributor in Australia. Um sold up in 2017 the model engine name still uh continues uh, was bought out by uh, some people up in new south wales uh predominantly rc car focused really at this point in time they're not doing a lot of aircraft kind of stuff under the new model engines regime but uh fortunately a lot of the brands that model engines had has now moved over to sort of the model flight realm O'Reilly Model Products is the distributor there. So it's good to see that we can still get the products that they will bring in. But Mike Farnan, uh, great guy. He was there, basically uh, was very integral in the in the model engines business and its success. And now he's doing some other things. Uh, but he's a great guy who has, his stories are excellent, absolutely excellent. You know, because his life revolved around radio control. He was bought, you know, model aircraft and that kind of thing. So uh was a great heli pilot, competed in many world championships uh, back in the day. But uh, you're going to really enjoy this chat with Mike Varnett. So here we go. Over to Mike. For a while now, I've been trying to get this man because he is a big name in the hobby. You may not think that, but his name is synonymous with the aero modeling industry. But he's also a great pilot. Mike Farnan, thanks for joining me. Thank you for asking me. 
Well, as I, as I just mentioned, the fun name is synonymous with aeromodeling, especially the industry. But I want to start off by getting to know Mike Farn and the man, uh, you know, and your history in aeromodeling. How did you get your start in this great hobby? Well, I think I, I didn't get a start. I was born into it. I joke around saying when I was born, I was sucking on pieces of balsa wood and broken aeroplanes because that's what filled our garage at home. So uh, I started flying control line. My earliest memory is five. There's photos of me and my brother flying control line aeroplanes. So that's that was the beginning. I was born into it. Now, the four kids my parents had, I was the only one who really went on and kept in the hobby. Yeah, well, of course, your dad's you know was Tony Farnan, so a big name in Australia here. And so, of course, he... He probably would have loved it that you got into to you know flying model planes. Yeah, no, no, he loved it and uh, loved that I got in there. But yeah, he, he just but it before me. He sold uh, model aeroplanes out of a milk bar in Camberwell back in the fifties. Really, that's interesting that he had a milk bar in Camberwell because my family, my dad's side, had milk bars and they had a milk bar in Camberwell. Well, he was opposite Highfield Park. In uh, Camwell and flu control line aeroplanes, oh, really? uh, and and he grew up. His parents had a house on Highfield Park, and he, as a little kid, he, he grew up making rubber models, and and they never flew. I can even remember this story. They never flew, and he ran into a, a guy, a kid back then called Norm Bell, who's now passed on, and Norm Bell just taught him about incidents, which which is li- lifting up the leading edge of that the model aeroplanes had his. His tissue paper model aeroplane wouldn't fly. Just put a a, uh, a matchstick underneath the leading edge of the wing, and off and went and flew. And that was the start of him. Including when he was, uh, I don't know, I suppose about eight, he built a full size aeroplane oh, to go down the hill and thought and thought it would fly. And we got photos of that, which is a classic with all working control surfaces. Oh, that's crazy. So you're born into it. Yeah, you, you sort of had no choice in a kind of way, but you did because you, you know your your siblings didn't continue with it, but so you fly that control line, and then what era are we talking here? We're talking 60s? We are, uh, yes, 70, 71. 71, okay. 70, no, 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 six, no, 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 I'd be about 68. I should say 68. Yeah, I'm getting way too much of my age, yeah. yeah. 68, 67. And that's when Tony wasn't selling hobbies then anymore. He was working for my department store then. Oh, was he? Yeah, in charge of the hobby department. <laughs> I, I used to love going to like the you know, if we went to the city and went to Maya, go to that top floor there on Monsdale Street and they had the toy shop and the rooftop carnival. Yes. And all that. And Tony's office was next to that and he ran that whole division and also ran the rooftop carnival. My brother and I even worked in at Maya's at Christmas time. And he started Maya as a hobby expert. Yeah. And then became the national toy buyer for Maya. So when we were a kid, he, Tony introduced Lego, Barbie, you name it. He brought it into the country first. Really? It's his fault. Before there was distributors. And uh, then became later on in life a director at Myers. And then this short story on him. Yeah. And then uh, he could see the hobby industry had grown, that you could sell hobbies without having selling out of a milk bar, which you couldn't do that back then anyway. But uh, And I was finishing uh, – school and he decided we'd go into business together so he retired from 
my uh, the youngest director ever to retire, and you was also the youngest director ever to become a director at Myers as well too. So yeah, that's was, a short one on him. For, for anyone that might be listening overseas, Myers is a big department store and it's still still operational here in Australia. And so to be a director of Myers is a pretty big big thing to do, and to leave it, at, especially at that time when it was such an important business, is a it's a big decision to make. But was he? Uh, I'll talk a bit more about your father after because there's so many more questions. Yeah, right? sure. We, we can go for hours. Yeah. Um, okay, so you flew control line. Around that 68, 69 period, we, we did see sort of proportional radio control coming in at that era. When did you get into sort of radio control? I reckon it would have been around when I was about 12, 13. We got some diamond sets and cougar sets sent out from – Japan, these were OS radio, OS engines used to make radios. That's right. And we had to get them from memory changed to 27 meg back then. And that was after Tony was working for Myers, so he sold his OS distribution to Southern Models earlier on. So that's that's when we got into control to, to radio control. But then I, you know, became a teenager and I was pretty handy at a few sports. And, you know, found sports. So I went away for it for about four years where I did all, you know, running and rugby and rowing and stuff like that until towards the end of my schooling. That's when Tony was um, decided to leave Myers and we went back into the hobby. Yeah, so in those early days of flying, flying radio control, were you at a flying club or the local park or, you know, what was that experience like back then? The uh, radio control was flying at Mark's club. It's for credit. Tony was one of the founding members of Mark's. And, but, well, I gather before I was born, roughly, Tony was one of the first to fly radio control in Australia. Whether the transmitter was the size of five shoe boxes with a 12 foot mm. antenna on it and be yeah. one channel, they hold this button and push it. Was, it. was there a lot of talk around the dinner table about model aeroplanes? Uh, in the early years, there was. Uh, Tony was into his music as well, which uh, so you know there was uh, <laughs> in, uh, like when I was six and everything, there was about three or four modelers who were musicians, and they'd come over and have a jam session in our house in Surrey Hills. So, but there was was always modeling around because the other thing which influenced me a lot was Keith Hearn, Hearn's Hobbies fame, yeah, yeah. lived down the street. And I lived in his garage, which is full of all sorts of aeroplanes. And we used to go flying and go on holidays at their place at Bonnie Doon. This is when I was a teenager. We used to fly radio control gliders off the hills at Bonnie Doon. Now tell me, because I've been researching this because I've got a I've got a holiday house not far from up the road from Bonnie Doon down near Mount Buller. And I drive past Bonnie Doon and see the slopes and I read somewhere that the Hearns used to fly off the slopes of Bonnie Doon and I've been trying to track down where do you know exactly where they were oh, you, you, you're, all i can say is you go over the bridge to mansfield you drive uh, this is my memory as a kid about two k's turn right and the road went down the side to the caravan park yeah and there's a stretch the road goes straight and uh Ilda Weir comes along the shore behind there. We were up on the hills up there, used to walk up there. We, okay. I, I was there, you bring up memories. I was there when they used to have a kite and it was a, a thing you tied up behind their speedboat, which was called Clancy. Yep. And I was there the day they turned around and said, 
oh, we're going to change this because all the Hearns were there and then the three brothers were in the Air Force and they were flying full-size gliders at Mansfield. And they did some changes to it, walked up the hill and jumped off the hill. Oh, cool. Turned into a hang glider. And then they made a primary glider on floats, which my dad flew, which they used to tow up behind the boat. So it's like an aeroplane. You hop yeah, in it. I've seen it. With floats and fly up that. I've seen photos at Lake Nilakuti, not far from Mansfield, with someone trying to do that. It looks like a bit like a hang glider and they sort of, yeah, pull it behind Primary the glider, hang glider, yeah. No, the Hearns did that. I was there. And they towed parachutes up behind um, the speedboat. So they were first in Australia to do that. And they just got one of the ex-Air Force parachutes and cut holes in it to make it not spin and everything. That's so that's when I was, that was, that was when, it, when I was between 10 and 14. So I said I was into sport, but during the holidays, I got and fly gliders off the hills and seaplanes and ran boats because I was into play with little radio controlled boats and into that as well. So well, you have been involved in a lot of different radio control, and of course, you've had an opportunity to try a lot of different things. But one area that you became quite good at was flying helicopters, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Before then, though, I raced radio control cars and was Australian one tenth champion racing electric mm-hmm. off road buggies. And uh, just business had we gone, we're into business bringing OS and pilot kits in and. All, all that sort of good stuff, all Japanese stuff, because this is before China and really Taiwan uh, built up as a supplier well before then. And um, somewhere along the way, um, someone was talking to me and said, you got any interest in flying hel- helicopters? And no, I got no interest whatsoever. And then about six months later, uh, Colt ran into the Colt Manufacturers, which was a famous brand back then, and they asked us to become their agent. So I... I, I I had a, a guy um, set up the helicopter for me and, and helped me out to start off with. And um, then that's stacked. And then I just rebuilt it and taught myself how to fly in Kevin Butler Reserve in Richmond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know where that I've, I've run past there a lot back in my school days on rowing camps, running past Kevin Butler Reserve. The What were the hell is like back then? Did you have gyros in them or not? They just, they just had gyros, and when I started, they weren't piezo gyros, they were mechanical gyros with an electric motor spinning weights. So uh, the the helicopters would always malfunction in some way. So half the challenge was keeping them running to give you a chance to learn how to fly. That was the, the main problems lots of people had. So, um, you know, and gyros would fail and the helicopters would spin and crash. But, you know, it was a... You know, you're balancing, keeping the machinery going and you're getting enough stick time to learn how to fly because there was no simulators or anything like that. And no one no one was, until a year or two onwards, were, were either putting a helicopter upside down. I was found that era when they just started to do it and there was a guy in Canberra, I can't remember, was about the first to do it. And then Simon Ventvogel flies at Pandarks now. He's about the second person in Australia to hover a helicopter upside down. And I was about third or fourth. He was in my office a few weeks ago. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. He was into helis as well. But the – Oh, yeah. And, uh, like, okay, you were bringing those those, um, – the the, – was it Kelt or Colt? Colt. Colt. um, Colty. And they – how did they sell back then? Like, because we we know the popular – helis really had a bit of a boom in the early 2000s kind of thing, 2005, 6, 7, 8 kind of period. What was it like, though, in those early days? 
that that was when the Herobo shuttle came up, came really popular, and that really opened up the doors to a lot more people getting into to model helicopters and they were becoming they were ready made. You could buy them pre made. So that was a real boom time worldwide. And uh, so we, we had the, the Colt Space Baron was a stable seller for us. And, it, and as we were the OS agent, that was the connection. Though we could get them uh, built in Japan with the OS motor screwed into the helicopter already and then shipped out. So, you know, we had a price advantage because we were the OS agent where the Hirobo agent would have to buy the shuttle from the factory in Hirobo with the engine in and the engine would have robo's margin on it and everything like that which would make them a bit dearer okay so you, yeah and the space baron ended up to be a better helicopter and there was also a concept 30 around that time which was that's right was a really popular as well too and you so obviously you stuck with helis because you went to world champs did you what how many times did you go to the world champs uh five times five times yeah i flew international six times and five were world championships and what, were you, what what was the competition? Was it just like a, a precision flying kind of thing, or, or what? It was it it's, was precision hovering where everybody has to do the same roughly five maneuvers hovering over a ten meter square at a certain height or certain speed, and then you go up and do set aerobatics loops, rolls, rolling stall turns, five forties, and everybody did the same thing. A bit like aerobatics today, straight in front of you in in a box. Yeah, so the aerobatics yeah. would have to be in the box. And you'd have a caller calling the manoeuvres, the name, and calling commence and complete. And, uh, yeah, and it was um, interesting, to say the least. I mean, met a hell of a lot of nice people, had a hell of a lot of fun. You know, um, one competition in Japan was equivalent. It was in a country town the size of Geelong. They closed the whole town down for us and even Hmm. had a full-on march and parade for us. That's crazy. It was absolutely Incredible. And how did you go yeah, in those events? Uh, Kasoka. Uh, that one I got uh, got the top 20. I came 17th in the world out of 75 or something. It was the best I ever did. That's pretty good. But I did put a lot I did put a lot of work into it because a year earlier they had an international Oceana competition at the same place. And I thought, I'm gonna go on a business trip and, and go to that. But what stuff was a bit uh, about three months, three weeks. Four weeks before that, I got pneumonia before I was going because <laughs> I was practicing during, during our winter in Melbourne. And um, so I just got the green light to go. And I came, there was 25, 30 entrants, and I came the top person outside of Japan. I came like ninth. There was eight Japanese in front of me, then me. But um, in Japan, model helicopters are huge back then, huge. They had 250,000 registered pilots no they they to enter in the equivalent to our victorian state championships you'd have to go in other competitions just to get to go into the state championships before you go in their national championships absolutely huge i I didn't realize it was that big that was back then i don't know what it is like now but it was mega yeah well their hobby magazine back then was it was like a, a niche or an inch and a half thick, and it was monthly. <laughs> really? Oh, no, I wouldn't want to do that. Radio, radio technique. Oh, that's just crazy. Like, that's amazing. In some ways, I can see, you know, I've been to China a few times, and the hobby's really growing in China, and I think that we could see yep. some really big numbers in the China market. Um, 
you know, as as they become wealthier, you know, generally across the population, they're looking for things to do and model aircraft, you know, and again, you only need a tiny percentage of the population to get involved in China and it becomes a really big thing. And I was talking to some manufacturers and they're saying that their biggest selling market is now the domestic market in China, which... Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. And also what governs things too is landmassing. Japan, it's a lot easier to take a helicopter off and fly it around mm. and fly model aeroplanes. In Japan, their biggest season uh, is flying model aeroplanes is during summer because all their flying fields are next to their riverbeds and the rivers have subsided and everything. That's where their flying clubs are. And, and again, in Japan, model cars are huge because they can just race in the car park. And, you know, they're, they're mega big. That's right. I remember reading, you know, magazines in the 80s and things and a lot of it was Japanese scene with cars and uh, that kind of thing and oh. used to see them set up their tracks and think, oh, imagine if we had that here. And I was only young, so I didn't know whether it even, even existed here. But uh, seeing what was happening overseas was always amazing. But um, times have changed a little bit, haven't they? The Halley scenes, like, uh-huh. I, I love Halleys. I've got some Halleys myself. I haven't found them for a while, but I love, I love the mechanical nature of a Halley. I love the look of a Halley. Just sitting there it looks great, and the size of them and that kind of thing. But it's um, they're just not the flavour of the month at the moment. But you never know; it goes around in circles. I don't know. I, I still like love helicopters. I'm amazed at how they've developed the flying and, and what it's like. They're 3D flying, but I also step back, going sometimes, going, I can't even work out what it's doing half the time. I mean, the the, the best pilot I ever saw fly and i did say i'd still say he's the best to me to watch uh uh it was curtis youngblood and he was a famous american that's right yeah. and he and he would just do the simple thing of takeoff and fly for 300 meters half foot off the ground backwards inverted none of these doing all this and it's, it's like a pencil and wouldn't move and just mm. incredible as i think sometimes it, it, I, I equate it to a mosquito flying around and it's i really appreciate the skill that's involved the, totally. The, the challenge that I have with helicopters is I never could relax. I felt like I was a second away from a crash every time. And, of course, I probably need to put more time into it. But I I love the idea of that vertical takeoff and landing that you can do it in a, you know, you don't, have to need, you don't need a runway. And I think that's actually, helicopters got me back into the hobby in, in the 2007. I bought a, I bought a helicopter. Um, but, yeah. And, and that's also, also the thing which which I've been lucky in a hobby still is gone incredible is all technology through all the years I was involved and in, how it changed so rapidly and everything, you know, quality of things got better. You know, I was around when, you know, four stroke engines came along and like you said, special gyros and helicopters and brushless motors and lithium polymer batteries and all this stuff. So I've been lucky. I've been able to see it from, you know, the roots and, what I haven't seen in the roots, I can just look at the old man's photos. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and so, did he take so, Did he take uh, a lot of photos of the old days? He took a mega, and there's a whole bunch which um, lending to the boys at Hearn's Hobbies because they want to scan them all and they want to do a lot of history on Hearn's Hobbies and everything. And I, I've got I've got boxes full of eight millimeter um, film which I offered to the MAA and they didn't want it. And some of it, it says, first radio-controlled flight. <laughs> really? Con- control line at Albert Park Lake. Yes. They used to fly, you know. Oh, so, that's you know, amazing. I, 
and I know that it still hasn't cracked or anything, yeah. but it's most likely going to get two runs out before it cracks up. So uh, the boys at Hearns are going to look at that too to see if they're going to digitalise some of it. That'd be awesome because some of it somehow has to get up there, but you know it has to. You can't people- lose that stuff. Look, I, like I've talked about this before. Um, I've got a friend of mine said, "Hey, I've got these old aero modelling magazines. My dad had. Do you want them?" And I said, "Hell yeah! I love seeing old old magazines." And he, they're magazines that range from about nineteen sixty six to seventy one, I reckon, and yeah. they're um, RCM and E magazines from the UK, I think, and there's a couple from the from America. And reading the articles and the photographs and the way they wrote is just amazing. I love the history of, of the hobby, like the those early days. That's why I like talking to people that are were there. Uh, you know, I used to read about there was a a, a flying race across the bay, and I actually had yep. um, John Lamont, I think, was on, and he was in in that event, and I was like, no, really. Because that was, you know, they wrote it up in Airborne, I think, in the eighties or something, and I remember reading about it. It was in the newspaper. Yes, I've got the I've got the article behind me. Oh, have you? I've got photos of it, following it in a um, rescue boat from the navy. That's right. And Keith 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 Hearn won it. That's right. He was one of the only ones to make it. Tony Tony was in it as well too. Now I've got photos, and and that's what's going the Hearn's hobbies and the, the actual newspaper article on it. Yeah, that's great. So they they flew. A, Across a quarter of the, the Port Phillip Bay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of cro- speaking of crossing Port Phillip Bay, are you still yeah. the Guinness Book Record holder flying across Port Phillip Bay with a helicopter? Um, I don't, I really don't know because I did the FAI World Record. So that's the Federation of Aviation, where and that was down the Sunraysia Highway. From Mildura, I did that in oh, did 90, 96, and that was, I did that, and Simon Bentvogel came and helped me. There's that name again. Yeah. And uh, he came and helped, and I did that on the Saturday and then did it again on Sunday and broke my own world record. And I've tried looking up uh, FAI world records, and I can't really find it, see whether that's still current. But that's the rules back then was your helicopter had to wave weigh five kilograms with fuel, batteries, everything. You had to nominate where you were taking off from and you had to nominate where you're going to land within 10 metres or some bullshit. You had to have scales, had to be certified scales that run around. So that was an FAI. This is different to Guinness World Records and um, did that following a a Capri sports car. Did you? And, uh, yeah, and that that, that was with a, a JR helicopter, which I played around with even putting because it was all new all this sort of stuff thinking oh how am i going to do it with fuel and all this sort of stuff and had saddle tanks on it but I ended up using an os 46 with a 32 size carby on it and it had about two liters fuel from memory i can't remember how long it took now that oh, one yeah. and um i even pried made it with a four stroke in it and I, the four stroke was brilliant until i added all the fuel to it and it just kept overheating it i didn't have the means to all the knowledge how to make it more purpose-built fan to cool it. Also, I tried generator, generator charge the batteries, and then I learned didn't need that because once it's flying straight and level, you're hardly using any power on your radio. Well, I watched the video the other day of you know some the, the, the Channel Seven News or something doing a report on you flying across the bay, and I'm thinking that's just yeah, uh, you know, it'd be very hard for that to happen nowadays. But how did that 
where did the idea come about to, to do you know do these long distance helicopter flights? I, I, I was well that, that that one came from I wanted to help advertise model helicopter flying because you know as you saw back then it grew really big and the general person you spoke to never ever heard of it. So I kind of did it that to, to help advertise and I don't know how I got it with Port Phillip Bay and um just worked on it, worked that I could do it. And on the day I did it, we had a, a humongous tailwind and it, and it basically blew us across the bay. So it just all did was made the landing interesting when I came into St Kilda. And uh, What year was this? Was this 90, what was it? No, 99. it was 98, 99, yeah, something yeah. like that. And, um, oh, hang on, 97, going back, you know, I'm looking at all. 97 was when I did world record for radio control in a straight line, June 96, inducted in the Hall of Fame, 97. That was the Sunraysia Highway one. I just yeah. saw something on the wall. But that's – and um, that, a friend of mine who's now passed away, a good friend of mine, Mark Smith, who was a fantastic photographer, he was worked at Herald Sun as the main photographer, and he said, Mike, if you're going to do it, do it the weekend before Christmas. I said, why the weekend before Christmas? He said, no tennis, no cricket, no football, no yeah, nothing. Yeah, they need news. If, if nothing is going on, it'll get covered by everybody. And my parents were sitting in, in the park in St Kilda where they do the parachute jumps in mm-hmm. for landing and said it was like a popolix now. All I could see was this wall of helicopters coming along. I had everybody. But how did like, <laughs> I saw that? So you were sitting in a helicopter flying a model helicopter. helicopter. Yeah. yeah, flying and, a model helicopter. And so – you were hanging out the window, basically. That one, I had the, we had the door off, and the helicopter couldn't go over a certain speed, which is fine. We weren't, so the air wouldn't get in and blow the other doors off, I guess, or whatever. But um, yeah, with the aerial, this is for two point four, the aerial sticking out through the door and everything like that. And it looked and, like um, the helicopter was sort of moving around a bit in the wind. Was that the case? Like you were flying ahead never, of the? I, I ever, never, ever. I never noticed. It. Didn't even. When we took off, I didn't even realise the wind had come up flying across. So I never noticed that at all. And, and you know, I should have because if I look down, you see photos, you see white caps on the water below. <laughs> but it's not until I t- t- flew across St Kilda and it turned into the wind saying, ah, oh, now we're bouncing up and down. And when you came into land, so watching this video, you, you had to pilot it all the way down to the ground from the other helicopter. So the other helicopter had to also basically drop down as well. Yeah. Did you have Fire a rehearsed plan right. or something? Or No. Well, the first plan was the full size from memory landed first and then I landed second well away from it. So we had to have, uh, you know, floats on the, on, the, on the chopper and everything like that in case it went in. So it was a bit, you know, <laughs> it's been the, the wrong brothers, as I call it. But then I got, then because it was covered by all news during the day, I was getting interviewed everywhere. And someone said, "What are you going to next?" I thought, "Well, maybe talk for." Well, I mean, me on maybe Bass Strait. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> well, there's still time. No, I've done Bass Strait. Oh, you did Bass Strait, did you? I did Bass Strait. Yeah. Uh, what? Following no, I got, from a heli. I got. Yeah, yeah. I flew Bass Strait um, like 2000. In one flight, so, or stopping along no, the way. No, no, no. We were going to stop. Twice, but had to stop three times because we flew into rain and bad weather. Okay. No, I did. I did that. Um, it was about two thousand, and I got sponsored by that Japanese magazine. Back then, it cost uh, twelve 
grand all up. It cost 12 grand. I got 10 grand from the Japanese because for that, I, with that, I did some test flights with a helicopter uh, from uh, Precision Professional Heli Services in Moorabbin. And uh, the heli- helicopter right. I I was. I remember reading about it somewhere. The helicopter, it was in the middle of June, no news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, heli- the helicopter uh, pilot was the only one who in the country trained to train pilots in formation flying for full size, and they chose him. Oh, that's, that makes sense, doesn't so it? That, and that, that was, that. Uh, I never, you know, I've got the helicopter working and everything, and, and everything worked out. I get about an hour and a half out of it. And so forth, and did test flies down at Pean Ducks, just doing laps backwards and forwards. Got all that, but never realised uh, when we turned up at the airport, Moravian Airport. Uh, next minute, oh, here's your survival suit. All right, and then they pull me aside and they're taping this thing to my leg, and I'm going, well, "What's this?" Uh, you know, it's, it's an EPIRB. They only had one EPIRB. So, and Mark Smith, that the Herald Sun photographer, he came along. And we start to pile my stuff in, and I don't know why. I threw a bloody another helicopter in pieces in. I don't know what for. And they put a jet ranger fuel in as well, too, and fuel canisters of fuel. And then he, then he said, and this is true, he said, now our takeoff's going to be a bit hairy. We're overweight. And it was like it was like the Vietnam War movies. We flew along, scraping along the grass field for it to get, get air speed up. To get into the air, and we flew down to some I can't remember, Hogan Island, I think it was, in the middle of the Bass Strait, landed, and he got out and dropped fuel canisters down. So we flew down the night before, and um, then continued down to Flinders Island, stayed the the night there, and then went down to the uh, northern east tip of um, Tasmania, in the middle of nowhere, landed. He couldn't make contact. To anybody on his radio, so he walked off to try and find a farmhouse, and came back about an hour later. <laughs> and then we flew to Flinders Island and refueled the Jet Ranger and my helicopter. And um, to start up procedure was Mark Smith, the guy who came along. He flew model helicopters as well. He'd start it, so I'd be strapped in my harness. Oh, prior to that, as soon as we took off and start flying, I had radio interference the whole way. For the whole trip, no. The whole way it glitched, glitched the whole way. The whole way it glitched. So what what <laughs> it was the was it coming? Was it coming from the helicopter or? or <laughs> don't what? know. Don't know. It, it, it was coming from the electronics from the helicopter because you know it was all day in the air. It would have crashed if it was something in in the um the model. But anyway, so we land at Flinders. We fill up. We fill up the Jet Ranger. Mark runs out, and he's got a safety harness on because he. Would open up the door and hang out and take all these good photos, and he'd start the he started the helicopter off, ran off. The safety harness got caught in my helicopter, oh, and while it was no. spilling up, flipped it. No. <laughs> uh, in those days, helicopters, model helicopters had fly bars, and I got out and got the fly bar, bent it out straight, and then flicked it around my fingers. She'll be right. <laughs> we went to talk off, and I knew we'd be right because straight off as we pulled out. The jet ranger couldn't keep up with the model. I had to slow down with the amount of fuel. So, so how much? And flew down. How fast was the heli going, roughly? Well, the model from memory, how fast it started off was about 30 knots, but um, later on we ran into that much rain 
that we were down to about 10 knots to the point that the rain wasn't even coming off the windscreen of the jet range. It was just staying there. And, uh, yeah, but we, we flew to Deal Island, which is a lighthouse. Land, we landed. The, the guy, um, I can't remember his name now. Sure, he, he, the pilot said, so get out. He took off and just went out of sight climbing because he had to radio in to say that we were still going, <laughs> still alive and that stuff. You know, and, uh, the other thing I would tell you, so I said it's an experience. This, this helicopter hardly takes off. As they're flying down there, you know, we've got floats, inflatable floats, and he goes, listen, if we have to go into the ocean, when we land, I'll be rolling the jet range to the right or the left. I can't remember now. I said, what are you doing that for? He says, if the blades swing down and hit any waves, the turbine behind our head will come through and take our heads off, so we have to roll it to one side. Oh, great. <laughs> Thanks for anyway, that. there was also things. There's yeah. also yeah. That, that's <laughs> why we're sitting in. We're just taking off, kind of the crazy ideas and radio interference. And then we, so we had to do an exit uh, stop because we ran into bad weather, and it was just like flying. It'd be like the wrong brothers again. You could see all these showers all around us, and we start to weave through them. That's why we're using up more fuel. And it got to the point that it was just rain. You just said, "How's it flying rain?" Oh, well, I don't know. I've never flown in the rain because usually, usually the transmitter won't work in rain, so you don't fly in the rain. Yeah, the, but, what, uh, what was the range of the model? The range in uh, how far could you, in, you could you, could it travel on the tank? Uh well, we I worked on it was about an hour forty five on a, a tank, and we were, we were doing like an hour and fifteen hour half, but I had two big large external tanks which you could see. And it's in its half lead or whatever, the internal tank as well. So I worked on the Fury once the two big tanks went was went to its internal. That's that was its reserve, and I knew that you know it had about fifteen minutes in that, and I had to adjust the mixture in flight because when it was full, the tanks were above it, so it was rich. So uh, as it was dropping down, I, I gotta get this right. So it was as it was dropping. Down, I had to uh, richen it up. Guesswork. But how was well, so it? You had it on your transmitter. You had some some sort of contraption. Yeah, in flight, in flight, in flight mixture. So and we flew about. Well, normally the model was only 15, 20 minutes in front of the tip of the blades of the real Jet Ranger. And when we got to Port Welsh, Port was more like sixty because we couldn't see and and. The pilot, the jet ranger, he was stuffed. He, he'd had it. He said, I've had it. Oh, really? <laughs> His words. Yeah, he was just totally exhausted because he had to navigate, watch this little bloody yeah, thing. Yeah, concentrating. And, and look at all his instruments the whole time. And um, he was, he was, he has had it. Did a great job. And then we had to fly back to Moravan. So a lot of luck. I'll never do anything like that again. So uh, it's good. Yeah, it's so good. I, I, my- I love an adventure. And so well, that, that story just is just uh, I love that. Uh, I've always thought I read about um, a flight that was done across the Nullarbor with a model plane. Yep, we sponsored that with a high tech radio. That was yeah. Jeff Tuck. Yeah, and yep. I, 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 and I again I remember reading it when I was a kid. I thought, wouldn't yep. that be great? I, I just don't think you could get away with it nowadays with all the regulations that they just won't let you do it. But I thought doing something like that, some long distance kind of thing. It's not just about yeah. it's not just about doing it. It's the preparation for it and the planning and all that. I thought, oh, that'd be awesome. I don't think people will do what I did or that no, anymore. They'll no. use computers. So they'll put GPS coordinates in and 
and off off they go. I think you know. I don't think anybody's done what I've done anywhere around the world. And I don't think no one will ever fly across Bass Strait sitting inside a helicopter or on a speedboat flying a model anything. It'll all be just you know set the corner and just push a button. <laughs> off they go. Well, the did you have to like get permission to do it or just just went and did it? We had to get permission to do it, and uh, but. Um, because uh, professional heli service was getting paid for it, they did all that. And, of course, we're out of uncontrolled airspace except Flinders Island, whatever, the little airport there. We had to stay below a certain height, but we kept climbing above that. But um, What was the height? Yeah, so what did the, you fly it? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, I, was I, it high I, up? I, I honestly can't. No, it wasn't high up. No, it was low. No, it was low. I, I, I would be guessing it would be... 300 meters of the guess it was in height. Yeah, couldn't go above that. That's a, a, a memory. It, it could have could have been 120, like um, drones today can't go above 120 meters. Could have been that. It might have, I think it brings about 300. And it makes sense because you you are in the middle of nowhere. But um, yeah, so and only and on that trip, only the ABC helicopter turned up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um. But the one that world records made it all around the world. I had a mate living in Vietnam. He contacted me. He said, I saw you on the news. What? See, who would have thought? <laughs> in Vietnam. But, you know, I had to write articles in English, so for the Japanese magazine, over three issues for them. But, you know, that was a lot of money back then. Oh, it's a truckload. Yeah, yeah. It's not a cheap exercise to get a helicopter to fly no. to Tasmania. No, but. no. no. Yeah, yeah, not not at all. But, were, you, um, were you flying yeah. fixed wing at, at, during this time as well? No, I, I did a full on. I don't know about thirteen years of helicopters didn't go to fixed wing at all. To you know, I, I was done dusted after four, four world championships, and then one was going to be in America, and I thought, oh, I'll come out of retirement, which you should never do, and I'll 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 go to that because every other World Championships, except the one in Japan, I had issues with lost luggage, fuel never turned up, having to use foreign fuel. You know, like uh, 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 I was sponsored by Powermaster and one of the World Championships was in um, Poland and NATO aeroplane clubs are sponsored by Powermaster and Powermaster Aeroplane said, Mike, this time, there's always problems getting my fuel, you'll have no problems getting your fuel. We'll get it delivered. It didn't get delivered. Didn't get delivered because the NATO officer who was bringing across the border into Poland was American. No one allowed him in. Oh, no. <laughs> but anyway, so I did that one of the world champs, which I started off wrong. You never want to be first up in a competition ever. <laughs> and I was, my lucky number was first. It was delayed for three quarters of a day, and I started later in the day, and I was first up. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't going too well. I was like 30th. And in the last flight, um, my main gear disintegrated in flight and the helicopter crashed. <laughs> there you go. Have you, and okay, have you <laughs> flown helicopters since then? Not really. I've, the only thing I've done is used what I've learned. We came out with a brand of Twister helicopters, collective pitch and indoor and everything, and sold them all around Europe and Australia for a number of years. That would have been the only really flying. Uh, never really picked up a, a nitro power helicopter at all. No, not really. And um, yeah, I just 
I went back. Aeroplanes I've always loved. You know, the best thing I love about model aeroplanes is takeoff and landing. Sounds silly. Yeah. Doing good landing and takeoff. I just love it. They look real and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, and 3D, you know, I enjoy doing 3D a, a bit with, with helicopters. But back in those days, you know, tar rotors used to let go, gearboxes. And you know, I, I've, I had so many mental crashes and, and mental escapes, you know, flying, yeah, <laughs> flying and, and rudder servos. I had one, it was called a 540, where you go up and do a 540 stall turn. And the tail servo failed, and it just kept spinning, coming down, coming down. On top of me, I bolted and just pushed everything known to man, and I looked back, and the damn helicopter skidded along the ground and landed. No. Where I was standing. Oh. <laughs> Instead of going to, one, it didn't explode and crash into the ground. <laughs> that is crazy. So, you know. Another time, same thing, practicing five, those 540s. Uh, this is a classic. My, my wife's from a dairy farm, Camperdown. I was practicing, and the tail thing, so I went again, or tail blade flew off. It crashed in the bull's paddocks, and the whole family had to get out there and feed the bull apples because it was a charging bull, and I had to drop it. See, life's exciting when you're really into flying helicopters and model aircraft and you'll never be bored. There's always a story to tell. Now, so, okay, we've got to talk about model engines, you know, the iconic uh, Australian hobby business that your father started. How did that all come about? You told us that your dad was at Meyer and he left, but obviously he had some he, passion for he was it. Who is that? Meyer. And he decided to, to, to retire and he was uh, to, to leave Meyer and he was going to go into business and he went on a, a world trip and, and he said, Mike, you're about to finish school. Do you want to come to business? I don't know what I'm going to do. And he actually registered a company called Verdi Marketing and he was going to bring in um, travel goods because being a director back then, uh, he was in charge of all sorts of um, product line, not just a toy floor, sporting goods, dresses, all sorts of things, and almost, um, travel goods. And on that trip, so that would have been like in November, you know, and I was just finishing school around there, uh, he dropped in to Japan to see OS, not there to get an agency or anything because they had an agent in Australia already, Southern Models. And they just turned around and said, you know, it's never been the same. You know, we, we want you to be our agent, dual agent with Southern Models. And that's when he came back. You know, we knew what OS Motors were and all that sort of stuff. And we came back with all good, you know, samples and all this and decided let's give the hobby a go. And um, within a year or two years, we became the sole agents uh, for OS because we outsold Southern Models by 10 to 1 or something. I mean, I wouldn't like to hear that. They're still in business now, but that, that was a true fact. We, we sold like 20 times more glow plugs in the year than they did, and I always just looked at this, and that was one of the things going, this makes no sense. What have they been doing? You know, and um, but uh, and then we got pilot kits and some other, jeez, uh, it was a brand of cars, buggies from there. Senyal, I still like Senyal, was something like that, and then coal helicopters, and, and it grew from there. And so and did it start where, at home, or did you have a, a, a warehouse? Or 
when when Tony when Tony first got back from overseas and OS was offered to him, the first shipment of OS uh, motors were sold, came in and were stored in my sister's bedrooms because both my sisters had moved out of home. And then, you know, in January, so I'd finished school, we rented a uh, warehouse in Crown Street, Richmond, and started there. What year is this? What did your model engine start? It was 81. 81, okay. And, okay, so you, you then, fresh out of school, start working in the uh, – in, uh, in, in the, the warehouse. In the warehouse, was it? And it, Yep. Uh, you, so wholesale only was a warehouse and it was just the two of us at the start. So you had to pack all the boxes? Oh, that was me. Uh, <laughs> I'm packing, packing, but, you know, it was all good stuff. Yeah, was, was it exciting? Did it seem like it was an exciting time, like doing something new and something something was around your passion? Oh, yeah, it was. It was really exciting. You know, you had an interest in it and everything like that. And like I said, the hobby technology was just growing. You know, silly things like, you know, your lock-on glow lead. That was first made in Japan. And we brought in from Japan. It was something like about, and this is back then, like $10.95, mm-hmm. which is huge that was massive, yeah. amount of money. And, you know, Tony being Tony, Tony could sell iced tea Eskimos, went to Taiwan and had a made in Taiwan. And we were the first into Taiwan getting power panels and things like that, which all used to come from Japan. But you could see that well, Taiwan's half the price. Let, let the top-end stuff stay in Japan, radios and engines and of course, the aeroplanes and lots of stuff, all the accessories were so expensive from Japan, fuel pumps. So I started travelling overseas with something I never planned on. What, travelling? Well, to, well, to source products, yeah, well, of course. Source product, yeah. I, I, I lost track how many times I've been overseas, 40, 50, more. It's all part of the job, though. Well, it is all part of the job. You it's, know? It's a, well, the internet's made things a little bit easier nowadays that you can you know, get access. Oh yeah, to yeah. Back, back, yeah. back then was a start. There wasn't even a fax machine back then when we started business. Think of that. Then fax machines came along. So uh, yeah, but uh, it was um, in those, traveling. Yeah. In those days, what would have been your biggest selling product? Would it have been like OS engines, or what do you think? Pilot kits and OS engines. We didn't have a radio. So that's one thing we, we lacked. Uh, but it was pilot kits. Was pilot was was the first really top-end kit. And then they came out with the EZ series. was first ready to fly, which was huge back in the day. Well, I've, I've had chats with uh, Mike O'Reilly, who you know you were competing yep. against over the years. And he's got a similar story because he, he basically, I think, finished university when, and his dad uh, had another career but then went full-time with the models. With the you know, aeromodeling parts and hobby parts, but yeah, you know, he tells me about times where he thought their business was doomed because their customers were dying. Like you know, towards the late nineties, oh, sorry, eighties, he was saying that the you know, it's older demographic they're passing away. We're going to lose our customers, but then you know, things would happen along the way that would boost the business up, like the advent of uh, electric aircraft in the late nineties really gave him a boost. Did you experience similar things? We never, we never looked backwards. I got to say, in, in until the later in the years when the hobby, you know, and uh, started really demise all around the world, but it's picked up since COVID though. But no, we we grew every year, and even 
uh, one we for head of capita we sold more OS engines than anybody else in the world and one year we sold more OS engines than anybody including America so we we were just uh we were just going uh, you know going for it and we you know the trade fairs and everything we did and um we did a lot of overseas travel which the others didn't do a lot i mean i don't know when mike i didn't see mike o'reilly like i went to the first ever beijing hobby fair the first ever one so that's, that's and a long time uh, ago. it'll be very different back then than what it is now yeah, and that's back when helicopters and they had some helicopter in and it was into one. Hey, can you fly this? And yeah, I can fly this. And it was pretty horrific. And then I did a, a pirouette and did nose in and they turned around, you do nose in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you sell our helicopters? <laughs> yeah, well, that's when we went from there and we went into our helicopters. But we, you know, we were lucky that we traveled and, and doing those. Uh, world records and it wasn't for the business that made a name for me overseas i, I went over to japan and had to give bloody talks and all sorts of oh, things be, yeah because so many model helicopter pilots and stuff like that so and you could go to suppliers and say oh i'm a world record holder you know and all this and, and my beauty was and it was i could fly a plane i was the australian 110 buggy champion and australian model helicopter champion so i could try any of those products so if it was good or bad but i had my hands over i had hands over all of them where mike o'reilly is great and everything he's a glide and airplane specialist but i had my hand on all three so i could go to all the factories and no i can do that i can drive that you know well it, it's funny how you know the, the business just kept on growing and you ended yep. up having premises out uh was it we went from we went from Crown Street to to Oakley, and then to Noble Park. Yeah, that's right, Noble Park, and and that was quite a big premises there. So you, you, the business, yes. obviously, how many staff did you have by the when you when you finished up there? How many staff? Did we you finished have? up there. We had eleven when we finished up there, but the peak of it, we had it was like twenty eight, yeah. including reps around the country. Yeah, and and you really had some of the top brands, you know, um, you know the high techs, the, the seagulls, the phoenixes. Yeah. That's right, and we we was then we got high tech radios, and we had to go through the headache of the early radios, and we even employed a technician to in house enrichment in the first high tech radio. So we had a problem fix it there, there Eric Bilby, who yeah. used to work for Kraft, and so we could um, fix there and then. So, um, but it was also trying to be smart and looking what else you could do for the hobby to make it separate from everybody. I was the first person anywhere, the roulettes, Australian roulettes. I and a guy who was an artist worked for us, Collie, in Richmond, we drew on the brown wrapping paper and sent it to Seagull. That was before you had drawings and everything with photos, photos which I got from Mark Smith, this, this old friend of mine, uh, who took all the aerials for the roulettes. Crossing, that was the first roulette, which I was just thinking, what can we make Australian? Then trainers, we called them boomerang. And for a number of years, the roulette was the number one selling aeroplane worldwide for Seagull. And the number one selling trainer was the boomerang. Yeah, that was my first trainer. Because it, it, it had this Australian feeling about it and everybody loves Australia. So doing things like that. So it sounds like you were involved in product development a fair bit. You had a good relationship oh, with, with suppliers. I did a lot. Did, and that's why I came. 
like we did radio control cars and I thought, saw what Southern Models did with die cars. So I'm going to do that in RC. So I went and did uh, V8 supercars, Holden Race Team, Brockies right. cars, and you could buy them in one eighteenth, one tenth, even one sixth at one stage and had licenses with the Brock family and with Holden and Holden dealer team and all that sort of stuff, paying royalties. And But you also, like, with those kind of products, you were selling them to toy shops as well. That was sort of wider distribution than the traditional that, hobby shop. That's, that's, and you are quite right. We saw the growth area was that toy shops and we, we aimed some product, not traditional hobby shops, but call them hyper toy, hyper hobbies. And we toy, we a hobby, you know, and we aimed and that helped us grow as well. Where, where the hobby might have been dropping down a bit, you could see it was dropping down and so forth. The crazy model helicopters are gone, you know, lots of stuff. And yes, we did. And that's when we came up with indoor helicopters and I come up with a brand called Twister and had friends over in England called Perkins. And I said, I've got this idea, design this and all this stuff, and they sold them in Europe. And the same thing, I said, I happened to do an Australian flavour, I did Australian Black Hawk. And then I thought, these are these counter-rotating helicopters. I said, what happens if you tie two together? And we did that and made a Chinook. <laughs> and it was the first person to make an indoor Chinook and even paid for, uh, paid for to get it, um, God, what do you call it, when you get it to design? Mental blank. So no one can copy your design. Oh, yeah, patent. Paint. Chinese. They said, you might, you need a paint. Got it painted and everything. Next year, went to the Beijing Hobby Fair. Every third booth had my Chinook helicopter. <laughs> and said, you said. And their answers. Kind of, well, paintings don't work in China, only outside of China. <laughs> I see. But <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> anything like that, I, I tried to think, what can we do to, to help the Australian hobby market grow, Australian flavour? Is there somehow I can connect and to sell overseas, which I did have quite a number of opportunities which did work. You did you also summer. bought in you bought in Mabuchi Motors, didn't you? Electric Motors? We were the agents for Mabuchi Motors because Mr. Mabuchi and Mr. Ogao is which is OS engines, they both went to school together when they left school. This is like during the war or just after the war, Mr. Gower said, I'm going to make these little combustion engines. And Mr. Bucci said, I'm going to make a little DC electric motors. And even to the back, well, it's 20 years ago now, you'd go to the head office of Mabuchi, which employed 45,000 people, no. would be a model aeroplane in the head office, electric powered model aeroplane. But, <laughs> but you, were, you were supplying Mabuchi motors to the automotive industry, weren't you? We were supplying to the automotive industry for about 13 years until it, it all went bellied up here. And every Australian-made car which had electric mirrors on it had four or more electric DC motors in it. But we didn't purchase them. We, we were just on a commission basis. We did the paperwork for them and everything like that and went to meetings. And that also helped in business going to see how tough the automotive industry. You get down... And they throw the shipping cart in front of you and it's got 10 stables in it. And they turn around and say, if we take these 10 stables out, the box doesn't fall apart. How much will cost saving beef to us? Oh, really? and you're talking, and you're talking point zero 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 one of a cent or something. That, that is, that's true. That's what the talk is like. And then, this is another funny thing. I'm having tops. 
and the engineers had come out and everything. And one engineer came out and got off the aeroplane. We were going straight to the to the meeting in Adelaide. That's where the factory was for these mirrors. And he looked like a hobo. We had to go and buy clothes from new shoes. And he got there and had this whiteboard. And he got up there and drew the new latest technical drawing with both hands, left and right at the same time. <laughs> Serious. I've never, ever, ever seen it. A technical drawing, electronic drawing, both hands are going nah. on the whiteboard. Yep, true. <laughs> this guy looked like a bum. <laughs> okay, well, look, it just shows you he had certain skills in some areas and not in others, and uh, yeah. his skill was not in grooming. Now, the, yeah. You you the, the, you sold the business basically in two thousand seventeen, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Do you miss it at all? I do, and I don't. Um, I, you know, I do miss miss the technology had changed and everything. And you know, I was lucky enough to have a warehouse and able to have some pretty big model airplanes to store and keep it. And um, but you know, number of reasons, and one of the reasons is it's in Australia. It's bloody hard to run a company now and employ people mm. it's not working for you. it does nothing works for you and the, the hobby had changed and we were a traditional wholesaler and even though we we had world hobbies as in an internet website we didn't really want to push that because a lot of our dealers turn would say to us if you went full on retail we'll never buy another thing from you and you couldn't Go to them and say, well, the history of Calot's Hobbies is they were a discount retail and you've complained about them for 20 years. Now they've turned into Ace Hobbies as a wholesaler and you buy from them, but they wouldn't take that as an argument. So, and a lot of these dealers knew me from when I was like 18. And, you know, there's a number of reasons. So, you know, a couple like that. And uh, it was the hobby had dropped off and, you know, I was burnt out. It really was. When you think about it, you'd been doing it for a long time. Well, I did 37 years, so straight out of school. It's a bit like the helicopters. I was full on to that for 13 years, and I was over at the end of it. You know, I, I, I've got to say, I, I did achieve a lot. You know, I was multi-Australian champion and won state championships in every state that had them and stuff like that. So, but It's, it's hard know, to maintain that, though. Like, you know, when, you, when you're that focused on something, you know, I've seen it in the hobby time and time again where someone just goes full on into the hobby and I just say to them, you know, you can't sustain this because you're going to hit the wall because you're just going to be sick of yeah. it. You know, I, 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 I've got a short attention span and and I go, I always say I go in four-year cycles. Okay, I'm going to go and race cars now. Okay, now I'm going to fly model airplanes. Model airplanes are still consistent there, but I suppose I've had breaks with things like, you know, starting a magazine, which – meant I couldn't fly a lot, but I could write about it. And But uh, I really enjoy flying now, I tell you what, and I can't wait till I retire. Mm. I'll, be doing, I'll be down in the field cutting the grass and flying as much as I can. But uh, what have you been doing since since the, the business closed? Well, I'm not totally out of the hobby. I'm only out of the hobby in Australia. I'm actually a consultant and work for J Perkins Distribution in England. Mm. And up to last year, I'd go to China for them, to the old Beijing trade fair. Mm. Uh, since SARS going along, of course, that, that hasn't happened. So I'm onto them every week and I've helped them develop the Twister range we've relaunched in in uh, Europe and model uh, uh, engines here uh, bought some in for their Christmas sales as well too. So working on aeroplanes, testing aeroplanes for them, and we're about to do a new scale indoor helicopter and stuff like that. So do that. 
On the other side, I've got my own uh, photography drone business called Outlook Drones, where I do weddings, inspections, real estate, and um, you know, anything in make up my time with that. Anything in between, yeah. And I've seen you down so, in the field a few times, down at Patna. yeah, yeah. I get out there. I just get down there. You know, I've just got a few large electric models which I like, and um, I've just got a new one in front of me now. Right. <laughs> and for like um. Fucker Wolf, 1.5 meter. Oh, you got that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I just dirtied it up with a spray gun to make it look a bit weathered. <laughs> but um, do you like building? Do you like building models or more into flying? I, I, I love flying. I loved building helicopters because you could do them in front of a television and screw them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I we've downsized to an apartment, but it's a three bedroom apartment. We've still got two kids adult kids living with us so there's room for me to do when they move out so you know i'll mostly get back with it at the moment i've, I've hardly done uh, any uh bolts of building at all i've uh, mainly been electric foamies flying and stuff like that because I, I i do love the, the flying and um get a fill there even though i do a bit of flying with bloody drones <laughs> but it's different it that's work yeah that's right yeah it's, it's and it's not and it's not challenging what i'm doing anyway <laughs> Yeah, your dad was. Um, when did he stop working? Because he he was he was right. He stopped work. He stopped working about full time about oh two thousand thirteen. Oh really? Was was he amazed yeah. to see where the business had, had had got to compared to when he started? I know I. I don't think, like I said, he was someone who could sell ice the Eskimos. So he just went for it. But it got to a point in business that when we started our own stuff, you know, the Holdens and, and you know, the boomerangs, he just let me do that because he, he could sell it. But uh, strange to say, he didn't have the ideas on products as much like that, you know. You see, why you could sell ice, why would you sell ice the Eskimos? But you said reason to somehow. But, um, so he, you know, he he he, he, listen, he was the way it grew, but it was his idea like these toy shops. We need to get things for these toy shops. That's another avenue to tell. We need to lock ourselves into that. So that, that, that sort of stuff. He was, this is a true story, all your junk mail you ever get in your mailbox, you can blame Tony Farnham for. Well, what he was the first, first person in Australia to do junk mail. When he was director at Myers, Back in those days, people didn't have credit cards. They had my cards. That's right. And every month, what you get in the letterbox, a statement. And he was down in accounts one time and saw them wrapping up. He said, what's all this? And he goes, there's a statement in it. Oh, really? And he went to Canon or someone and said, we send out 10,000 statements a month. What have you got you want to clear? You know, give me a special price for it. And I'll clear it for you, but we we'll only pave the stock we sell. And he put a, a slip in for a, a Canon camera or something like that, and went from there. See. That's a true story. Junk mail, See, Tony. Good businessman, looking for opportunities. Exactly. Well, selling you know control line models out of a milk, Tony's milk bar. Yeah. <laughs> and did Tony? Yes. Um, did he continue to fly into his older age? Yeah, he, he continued on to fly. Yeah, he did. You know, he slowed up. Oh, about 2010, I mean, um, we got him up and flown, me and my brother, 
geez, about eight months before he died, but it was with an aeroplane with gyros on and everything that, that mm. wouldn't allow him to loop a roll and everything like that. So standing by him, but yeah, got a photo with his suit coat on flying it down at, at police paddocks of all places. Yeah. I remember meeting uh, one of the Hearn brothers, um, the last one to pass away. Uh, it was at an indoor flying that we used to go to down in Doncaster kind of area. Jack Hearn? Jack? Could Jack? Be J- oh, yeah, Jack? I think it's Jack. And he, he walked in and uh, I didn't know who he was and I ended up having a chat with him as I normally do. And, um, you know, he said he was a Hearn. And I went, what? I said, this is hobby royalty right in front of me oh, i couldn't believe it anyway he's, he was in his 90s and i said do you still yeah. fly he goes yeah, yeah i still fly i've got this foamy delta wing thing with twin engines and you know all that and he said oh i love going down to the park and flying this thing around and so you would have thought you know back in the day you had to build the kits and go and fly them and now he's loving this foamy and thought it was the greatest thing and uh, one thing led to another. My, my brother was uh, is a pilot for Virgin, and he flies with one of the Hearns, who yes, the, the grandson. That's of, young Bruce's son. Yeah, yes, yeah. and he he's so he's a captain, and my brother flies with him a bit, and and of course you know you know talking about model planes and things like that. So you know it's it's amazing those names like you know Farn and O'Reilly oh. Hearn. These these are the names yeah. that really like I, I I just released a video. From a jet event that I went to, and in that video, I said that I interviewed some of the, the guys that sell, you know, jet gear and all that. And I said I really appreciate the people that give us the opportunity to be able to go and fly the industry. That you guys took a punt to and kept on working hard to give us product to enjoy. And I, my fear is that if you take that away, if the industry really dies, say in Australia, we're going to be down to sort of a very generic layer. You know, there's nobody out there looking for something else that we could enjoy. It's just going to be dulled down, uh, kind of thing. Well, I think I think you, I think you could have said that before COVID, and I think a spin-off of COVID, which has been great, is that people who played with the hobby when they were young have got back into the hobby, especially with RC cars. Tamiya, which is a famous car brand, way back in the day had Jet Hoppers, all these famous cars are famous back then they came out with this antique range jet hoppers and everything about two years ago well during COVID, all around the world you couldn't get them anywhere because dads were going there and buying hornets and jet hoppers and everything because that's what they used to have and and plastic kits and and it's and it shows up in rc planes as well too so the secret is is that it, it's i mean the word was and it seems like all around the world the first six months of last year, COVID, every month was like Christmas. Yes. In the hobby trade around the world. Now, the secret is that increase is huge. If you can keep 20% of them back in and keep them going for the years ahead, that's 20% growth. Rather than a downhill slide, it was going. Well, it was interesting that uh, a few doors up from my office is a, is a business that um, – retails and distributes inline skates roller roller skates oh, yeah. inline yeah. skates and literally the owner said to me those exact words it's like christmas and it keeps on going they had you know he had to get another warehouse he employed he said i've employed four new staff and i said to him gee watch out because it could like you might get to a saturation Correct. point but you know what it has not slowed up for him that they're still busy 
and maybe there's been that flow on effect. I, this whole COVID period fascinates me how people, you know, went out and spent money on stuff. And people say exactly. it's because, oh, they couldn't travel or whatever, but not everybody was, you know, running off overseas. But I think we were just cooped up and we were staring at stuff and we just wanted to do something and we bought stuff. Like I bought a motorbike and I couldn't even use it because it was, was allowed outside the house. <laughs> and then when I did, I fell off it and hit my shoulder. So... Well, we sold, during, we sold our house during COVID and bought during COVID. So you know what I was doing during the COVID lockdowns was painting the house. Oh, <laughs> I didn't get to enjoy, enjoy anything, painting, grouting, doing oh. this now, you know, that stuff. Anyway, yeah. that's, that, that's just life. But, you know, the secret is I just hope for the hobby trade because the hobby is great um, that, you know, it, it keeps growing to a certain extent because it wasn't. It was shrinking. And that was a world fact, world fact everywhere. It was shrinking. And you got to look what's disappeared. You know, there's, there's companies in America which have disappeared completely and stuff, you know. It's, it's JR of- disappeared, reborn, and, you know. That's right. There's kind of, bounce, kind of bouncing around. Grabner disappeared and reborn kind of. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things, though, when I look at it, and I, for years I've looked at, you know, what can you do to try to, you know, turn the tide? And I think the problem is, is that the tide is moving so fast in the wrong direction that it's very, very hard to change because the experience that the era modeling hobby is having is very similar to other areas in, in society. You know, the local bowls club, the cricket club, the football club, the golf club is all saying the same thing. We need to get new members. We need to get new participants in. But now with the advent of the internet and kids gravitating towards computers and lots yeah. lots more choice a lot more choice than what we would have had when we were kids that everyone's and i work in marketing and the, and the word of the week is attention everyone is fighting yeah. for attention and it is so hard to get anybody's attention and it's not going to get any easier and so how do we you know it's just getting tougher and tougher but i think that you know i think there'll always be aero modeling I'm very, very confident of that. That there will always, there'll always be, be aero modelling. Yeah, it will. There will always flow, be. but yeah, I, I can't see it totally dying off. Yes, I was, it was interesting. I was looking at some analytics of uh, some of my videos that I do on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel, and the 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 average demographic is like thirty five to forty four, not getting twenty year olds. Yeah, yeah, thirty five to forty. You're not getting. You're not getting. I mean, that's still. Better, I mean, I know sixties and eighties. You go down some of the clubs. It's full of. You know, 70-year-olds. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. You know, and, and, oh, I hope to be that 70-year-old at the club sitting around. I mean, you, you, you've got a, a, a young boy, have you? Yes. Is he interested in the hobby at all? Not really. Well, he's, he, you know what I, he's interested in? If I pull the simulator out, he'll jump and go, okay, my yeah. turn. And he's interested in trying to hover the plane, not land it. And I keep on saying to him, why don't you just come with me? We'll have a fly. You might just like it. He said, what have you got to lose? You know, an hour from away from playing a computer game. But yeah. I, I think that I definitely believe that you have to be wired a certain way to get into aero modeling. It's the same as if you're into, <laughs> car, into you know, restoring cars is that, you know, if you're restoring a car, it doesn't happen overnight. And there's a lot of people that want it there and then and don't want to put in the effort because they'll just get bored of it or, or whatever. Whereas we're tinkerers, we'll sit there and go, okay, um, I'm going to build this model and I'm going to learn how to fly it and I'll probably crash it a few times, but I'll keep on going until I get it. Uh, but you are, you are right. It's electronics, it's internet, it's, you know, all, you know, Netflix and all that sort of stuff, the younger generation. I mean, you go back, I'm 
older than you, when I was a kid, we were riding push bikes everywhere and doing billy carts mm. and getting ball bearings and getting pieces of timber and getting a hammer and nail and a screwdriver and mm. everything. I mean, my son has grown up with this hobby all around him and he had no interest in it whatsoever. Now, whether that's he, – he was very, very – he ended up being an elite sports person, but whether that took him away or was this is dad's work. I mean, his mates would mm. come down to the warehouse and have a look, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. all these planes and stuff. But, again, you know, younger generation. And so my – my son's never built anything, but he's built a computer. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know how to do that. That's right. But, it's, you know. You know, I always, say that, I always say that if we were growing up in this era, what would we be doing? And we would be on the internet. We'd be looking at social media and we'd be doing different things. That it's, it's, you know, oh, I talk to my mum quite often, of course, and she's turning to that grumpy old lady that, you know, oh, the society nowadays, and I keep on saying to her, stop looking at Facebook. There were stupid people. There were stupid people now, and there were stupid people back then as well. It's just that you hear about it more because you're staring at the internet and get away from it and do something else. But uh, but yeah, we would have been we would have been playing games and doing that kind of thing. And you know, oh, like I, oh, I I say I'm a child of the '80s. I was born in well, I'm 47 now. I was born in '73, but in the '80s is when I really got fascinated with radio control. And from magazines. And then the whole Tamiya radio control car thing, like, oh, that was massive. And at school, and it, it was, yeah. I, I put, it's akin to what I think control line flying was like maybe in the 60s, where you'd see someone else doing it. Your mate bought, got one for Christmas and he was flying at the park. And then you went and told your parents, I want one of those. Because so many people tell me that they used to have a control line plane, you know, when they were a kid. I was, yeah. I was so you, to, you, you missed the Cox, Cox yeah. era. Cox PT-19. The pet, well, I used to go to the hobby stores and see the PT-19, the blue and yellow. It was plastic, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yep. I, yeah, and yeah. I, every hobby shop had one. I was always just sitting there. Yep. And I always thought, oh, yeah, that'd be – that'd be. you know what? We, but my, my son said something to me interesting, something interesting to me. Uh, I think he was eight at the time. We're driving along going up to, to the snow or something like that, and he said to me, Daddy, I want one of those things, one of those planes that flies around you. I said, control line. He said, yeah, yeah, one of those. I said, why do you want one of those? He goes, I think I could do that because I'm holding on to it. And I thought that's yeah. a really interesting thing versus the radio yeah. control. He felt as if he was holding it, he'd probably be able to do it. And I thought that's a different take on it. And it's interesting though, uh, you know, like when a club puts in a, a control line circle and a few people start doing it, then a few more attracted and a few more attracted and it keeps on growing, growing, growing. And you, just, you have a look at IMAC in Victoria, you know, down at our club at Pakenham. Yeah, I mean, iMac is all right. He's doing it now. Well, I'll go and do it. And not, next minute, you know, they've spent ten grand That's on right. an airplane. But the thing is, there's a father, the father and son thing. You, you mentioned it. The the, the buggy craze back in the eighties. I mean, that's when when I was racing buggies, and I even had a race team or some stuff. And you go down to Templestowe, and uh, there'd be like 150 people there on the weekend to race cars. But it'd be father and son. Yeah. And some of the father and son would race or the son would be racing and father be doing all the pit work and stuff on it. Yeah, that's right. And See, that, that's that's that died out a lot. lot. Well, it, it still exists in certain areas. The thing is, I think that being a father with a, with a son that really loves computers, that yeah, it's hard to go and want to sit behind a computer and play games with him because they're games that I – don't understand um, that not interested in the kind of way 
Whereas that shared interest of, you know, RC cars and, okay, I'll be the mechanic and you do this and blah, 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 we'll work together as a team. It doesn't exist sitting behind a computer that much really. And uh, yeah. and so it's harder, I think, for dads to connect with with something like that and to know, well, how do I support him? You know, okay, he likes playing computer games. So I think we spend a lot of time trying to convince them, why don't you come and do this? Come and ride your bike with me and, you know, that kind of thing. But he... It's just a different. It's just a different era. It's just a different era, and you know the thing is what we've seen even in our local flying club that we've got a group of kids that love flying. They're wired that way. They're, they're, you know, you ask them about computer games, they say, "Well, why do I want to do that? I'm not interested in that." And outside of that group, I know one other kid, one of my um, uh, friends, uh, my son's friend, who would be an era modeler. He's the kind of kid that goes, "I'm not going to play computer games. I'm going to go and get a piece of wood and build something." So it's uh, challenging times. But- well, that is, and it, it gets back to my days when Tony was running Myers. He, uh, on during Christmas holidays, they, they'd have model building. That's right. Kids would go up there and build Bosswood aeroplanes. Mm. And Keith Hearn used to run that. Really? Yeah. See, I've always said that um, if, if flying clubs really want to try to get younger people in, then they've got to actually put some action in place. So, for example, a holiday program. You know, when the, when it's school holidays, you advertise it with the local school that, you know, come down to the so-and-so club and we're going to build a plane. You know, you pay $200 and you'll get the plane and whatever and we'll help you build it and then we'll put you on a simulator and we'll get you starting to fly it and all that kind of stuff. And that would be run by the retired folk at the club that had the time to do that and had the experience to do that. And, you know, of course, they'd have to have working with children checks and all that nowadays. But... Uh, you know, give people a hands-on experience because what ends up happening is little Johnny says, oh, I'm going to this thing. Do you want to come? Ask your mum if you can come. Yeah, okay, I'll ask my mum. Oh, and tell other, you know, bloke Aaron to see if he wants to come. And the next minute, you know, there's a f- bunch of four mates that have turned up and now, you know, they'll push each other along if they get interested all at the same time and you'll have four new members, you know. Well, they're the, cha- they're the challenges ahead because I'm a member of the same club you are and uh, that's the most juniors I've ever seen down there in the last 20 years. Yeah. It's a so, big, it's a, you know, so, uh, which is good, but I, I gather other clubs aren't seeing the same no. increase. <laughs> but the only thing is uh, there's a caveat that I put towards that because in our club we have 170 members. That is probably the biggest model flying club in the country. So as a percentage of the membership, We've got like six junior members, and that is probably consistent with other clubs as well. It's just that we have 170. So, yes, it's great to see them. They're a good bunch of guys. The thing is they're getting older. Uh, you know, one of them guy is going to join the army, so we're going to lose him. Um, yeah. What the others end up doing, because another one's turning 18 at the end of the year or something like that, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, even though they're really passionate about it. So it would be interesting to see see where it all goes. But uh I'm a big fan of trying to encourage middle-aged men. You know, I always say that if you're you're a family man, you've worked hard, your kids are now finished school, you don't pay the school fees anymore, you've got a bit of time back and have taken to, to footy on a weekend, uh, you're looking for something to do, you've got a bit more disposable income, you've paid the house off, go and fly a model aeroplane. Nothing beats it. Uh, well, it's a dream that we can hope will happen one day, but... Uh... At least this COVID, that you know, numbers and sales has increased worldwide. So let's just say it's a younger generation we're strug- still struggling on. Yeah, that's right. I think. Look, I'm just going to go out there and enjoy my flying because sometimes I get you know you get the press looking at it, going, "Oh, it's dying." But in saying that, our club's flying. 
literally, you know, we've got a lot of members, a lot of passion still to keep things alive. So it's it's, it's, not, it's not too bad. And flying That's events, right. flying events are still great. And actually, you you're a big supporter of a lot of flying events, weren't you? With model engines, you used to turn up with. Oh yeah, we used to models. sponsor a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, we used to sponsor events. You know, like you even mentioned things like that guy flying down the Nullarbor. You know, we sponsored him. Chef Tuck back then, you know, we sponsored all sorts of things. We we were the biggest advertisers and the biggest sponsors in, yeah. in, on the Australian market. And that was on purpose and that was one of Tony's things as well. He was really into all that sort of stuff. So, you know, well, I think the brand um, recognition. Well, you know, I've spoken to other players in the industry and they always looked up to model engines, you know, they said, oh, no, model engines are the biggest by far. You know, they're, they're beating us and, um, you know, doing a good job. So, you know. Yeah, that's that's from peers that were saying that, so that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's just trying to think outside the circle what else can be done. That's what we always were doing. Yeah. Now, well, I was, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you've obviously had a lot of different models, whether it be helis or planes over the years and access to uh, almost like the kid's dream, access to unlimited supply of radio-controlled toys. But what has been your favourite model? Of all time, uh, most probably would have been the Boston bomber, I had, the Havoc, which had two seven-cylinder radials in no. it, and um, that still exists. Um, one of David Law's mates purchased it off me, but it's never flown since. So I can't remember. It was about four-meter wingspan, and it sounded fantastic in the air. Oh, I was going to say with the radials, that'd be awesome. And it was the only model RC Havoc in the world too. So some countries they call them Havoc, some countries they call them Bostons to an engine bomber from World War II. I don't know why you sold it. I had nowhere to store all these things. You're going to have to tell the kids to leave. Look, it's a great way to cull the fleet, isn't it, when you don't have room to put it anywhere? Yeah, yeah but, you know, I had so many incredible experiences which i thank the hobby for and you know i I experienced a few really really left field things which no one will experience again and 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 was because of the hobby but wasn't a hobby you know i've got things like i've got the key to muncie indiana given to me (laughs) by the mayor of muncie indiana really when i was in america you know doing something over in america got that given to me and I affected a, a family over there and took them 18 years to find me. Really? So it, it's yeah. interesting. It's like you're still, you're still relatively young. Like, you know, you, you, you've got plenty of years ahead of you. And you can tell by the way that you're talking, you've still got that passion for the hobby, even though, you know, it was a business for, for most of your life. You know, you've been around it in a business context. But um, do you ever see yourself slowing down in the hobby or not? I think I've already slowed. You have, no, sorry, you, I mean, you have. I don't fly but... competitions or anything like that. I'll always be an aero modeler, that's for sure. And I'll always be flying, you know, planes. You know, it's not necessarily you're going to jump into helicopters or anything like like that. You know, I might one day again go back into them. RC cars, I wouldn't, you know, done that. If, if I had a young kid who was into RC cars, I'd go racing with him. But, um, but planes, I'll always be part of my life. Always love planes. You know, I grew up sucking on broken tails from all Tony's aeroplanes, which were in our garage when I was a kid, crawling around my nappy. And then living, as I said, in the Hearns, Keith Hearns 
garage, which was down the street with all these incredible models and things. Gee. Well, so many stories to tell, Mike. We could go on for days and days right. and days. But Good. A, a big thank you to you and the whole family, really, for what they've done for aero modelling in Australia. That you know, I know. sincerely mean that. That without the likes of yourself and your dad, that we wouldn't have seen the boomerang trainer and and OS engines and high tech gear and all that kind of stuff. And uh, these are names that we we see and talk about every day in in the in the hobby. That we wouldn't have had that opportunity if it wasn't for you and your dad. So a very, very big thank you for everything that you've done. No, no, it's been a great trip and who knows where, what's on the horizon. But, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, well, Mike, thank you. And thoroughly enjoyed meeting a whole lot of different people too from all around the world in Australia, all shapes, sizes and it, well, isn't, isn't that good? Like the, It's amazing when, I've always said, I've said this in the past, when you get to travel for your hobby, it's a totally different experience and the, the people that you meet that you connect straight away because you've got a common interest and it doesn't matter about language barriers and things like that is that, you know, this hobby is not just about going to a flying field and flying a model plane. It's a lot deeper than that, I think. And, for, you know, sometimes I don't mind going to a flying event and not flying, just having a chat, catching up. And, you know, I, I was looking at the, the last video that I that I put up on YouTube with this, this jet event and, I was looking at myself and going, gee, you look really happy there. This is me talking to myself. And I thought to myself, well, why am I so happy when I'm there? And I was, I am genuinely happy. Like I'm thinking, why am I so happy when I go to these events and I'm upbeat and all that kind of stuff? Because I genuinely like being there. Just absolutely yeah. love being surrounded by model aeroplanes and people who fly model aeroplanes. So wouldn't change it for the world. Well, you're doing a good job yourself. That's for sure. You're you're really energized up. The hobby, I reckon you've been around like five, six, seven, oh, eight years. Look, I was well. I had the. I was selling the planes for a period of time, and then yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, with the flat out so see stuff, you know, you know. Yeah, no, it, no, it, it, enthusiasm. That's what we need, and you, you've definitely got it, and, and uh, that's great because we need that to help promote. Because I know how hard it is. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, and and, and and people expect the hobby is bigger than it is in some ways and isn't but it's because it's so much in people having fun and enthusiasm to it makes it look bigger yeah. than it is but um well, it's all full of fun i appreciate those kind words i think the thing that keeps me going is um i love the creative outlet of doing things like podcasts and videos without having you know because my day-to-day work i'm working for customers doing marketing work and they uh tell you what to do most of the time and then uh Fortunately, I've got some customers that, you know, listen to me a fair bit and I have my input. But at the end of every job, you you get your work and you show the customer, you say, do you like this? And they have to say yes or no or, you know, but I need you to change it. When I do flat-out RC stuff, I am the boss. I produce it. I do everything. And so I just do it. <laughs> and if I like it, it goes. If I don't like it, well, sometimes I just put it out there anyway to see what other people think. And so it's not it's not like it. I don't see it as hard work. I just see it as a good outlet for me. And uh, except my wife is staring at me saying, can you hurry up? Because I had to turn the heating off because uh, the heating makes a lot of noise. So that's <laughs> it. It's only my family. That I, think, I think it's t- time time to go, I think. Family yeah. first, remember that. That's right. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate you know, uh, thanks you joining me. That's great. Okay, great. Bye. Thanks. See ya. Bye. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know.
Big thank you to Mike Farnham for joining me. I hope you enjoyed his stories because they were great. Uh, I just sat back and just had a grin on my face, which you can't see, of course, whilst we were having a chat. But loved all those stories about those long distance flights, which uh, I've got this sense of adventure. And that to me is an adventure. And I'm always looking for, for a new adventure. And I've always had these ideas of doing some sort of radio control challenge. Don't know what yet. But I just think nowadays it might be a little bit harder than what it used to be with a lot of our regulations. But anyway big thank you to Mike really enjoyed that uh, that chat with him and getting to know a bit more about his story well lots of events coming up keep an eye out for them uh, if you're down in Victoria the Bensdale mid-May muster in the middle of the month uh, around the 15th or 16th one of those dates just jump online have a look at the Bensdale District Aeromodelist Club uh, that that event is a great event there's an IMAC event coming up down here at my local club at Pakenham I think on the uh 15th and 16th, that same weekend actually as the as the Bansdale event. Jet guys are going to be at Bansdale as well. Uh, up in Queensland, I know there's some, some big events happening there. Uh, get down to your local events, support them and have a bit of fun. Let's get back to some decent flying out here in Australia. If you're overseas, I hope that you're dealing with the COVID situation. You know, if you're listening from India, I feel sorry for you. The numbers have gone crazy over there. So hope you can get on top of it. But uh, all is well down here in Australia land. Uh, now, don't forget, subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it and tell your friends as well. Let's spread the love. And don't forget the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. I'm going to hope maybe this week I might have another video up. So I've got one in the bag. I've just got to finish editing. Uh, but I just had the recent video about um, the jet event that I attended a few weeks ago, the Wangaratta Jets event. So jump online, Flat Out RC, to search for it and you'll find it. Don't forget, whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, Instagram and Facebook, get on there. Do you know that uh, about 90% of the people that watch my YouTube videos aren't subscribed? Just get on and subscribe, then you'll know when they come out. More coming. Anyway, big thank you for listening, and hope to be back next week. Just got to record another interview. Got any suggestions? Yell out. Thanks a lot.